And if you will, as you probably know, uh, this morning we will be taking the Lord's Supper. And contrary to what some might believe, this is not a small matter. What may seem insignificant or even foolish to the flesh is used mightily by God to communicate his grace to his people. And so we're commanded to prepare our hearts for the receiving of this sacrament. God commands us to prepare our hearts and to examine ourselves to to ensure that we don't dishonor him by taking this beautiful sacrament in an unworthy manner. You see, by partaking in the Lord's Supper, we are declaring to God and to one another and to the world, in a sense, that we are united to Christ and that we are, in fact, bone of his bone and and flesh of his flesh and that he is feeding and nourishing our souls by his spirit working in and through his word. Now, to declare such to be the case when it's not actually true of ourselves is to abuse the sacrament. It's to dishonor the very flesh and blood of Christ. And so we ought to examine ourselves, as as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, to see whether or not we are in the faith. We ought to ask ourselves if the union with Christ that's, that's expressed in the sacrament of communion if it's a reality for our own souls. And if it is, then you could be assured that you are welcome at the Lord's table. You can be assured that he rejoices in your presence at his table. But if you've not been united to Christ, if you've not been convicted of your sins, and if if you've not repented of your sins and, and turned to the one who's both willing and able to forgive you for your sins, then you are not invited to the table of the Lord. You see, everyone who sits at his table will be examined as to whether or not he is wearing a wedding garment. That is, whether or not he has come to the table with a heart of faith. And so we're told in 1 Corinthians 11, whoever eats the the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. But let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Proper preparation, therefore, is necessary before we can properly partake of the Lord's Supper. And it's my deepest hope and desire this morning that this message will be helpful to that end. We'll use this time to corporately prepare ourselves and prepare our hearts for the receiving of this this beautiful sacrament. And we'll do so by considering our text here in Zechariah chapter 12. We'll read verse 10 of this chapter. Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. 
And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look upon me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. This verse shows to us the true nature of faith and repentance. We'll consider these things by looking at this verse in three parts. First, we'll see the source of faith and repentance. Then we'll see the sight that is true faith. And thirdly, we'll see the sorrow that comes with a genuine evangelical repentance unto life. We see the source of faith and repentance in the first portion of our text. It says, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. The speaker here, as you might have guessed, is Jehovah himself, the Lord God. He's prophesying here concerning the pouring out of his spirit upon his people. This might lead you to think of Pentecost, that day in which thousands of Jews were converted in in a single day. They thought back to the crucifixion of Christ, and they began to mourn for what they had done to him. And God certainly poured out his spirit among them, adding to his church 3,000 souls that day. And yes, this promise was literally given to the house of David and and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we certainly pray for their conversion. And we believe that there will be a great conversion of the Jews on the day of God's choosing. But we also know that all the promises of Abraham have been given to the Gentiles by faith. We have received the same promise of the Holy Spirit. And so this prophecy continues to be fulfilled even today among Jew and Gentile alike. Anytime a person comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ, it's because God has poured out his spirit of grace upon him. You see, a man in his fallen state would never come to faith in Christ apart from the spirit being poured out upon him. Think about how the Bible describes you in your natural state. It says, you come short of the glory of God. It says you're dead in your sins to the point that you would never seek for God of your own volition. In fact, you are incapable of doing anything acceptable to God whatsoever apart from his grace. Romans chapter 3, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one does good. Not even one. The Bible describes you in your natural state as a slave to sin. You're a lover of darkness that flees from the light. Your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. 
And if these things are all true, and and they certainly are, then how could you ever come to saving faith in Christ? It certainly cannot be of your own choosing. It must be by the supernatural work of God upon your soul. Ephesians chapter 2 describes this regeneration of man powerfully. It says, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. And then Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The source of our faith is not our own will. It's not our intellect. It's not our ability to live a moral life. The source of our faith is the spirit of grace poured out upon us, working faith in our hearts. And this faith, as we'll see, produces within us a genuine repentance. Faith and repentance go together in in such a way that they can't really be separated. Thomas Watson called them the two wings by which we may fly to heaven. When a person comes to saving faith in Christ, he comes in repentance. And when he repents, he does so with a believing and a faithful heart. You can't truly have one without the other. And so if you found yourself weak in your faith, where preparation for the Lord's Supper has been cold and heartless, and perhaps your repentance has been dry, and it even feels superficial at times, or maybe if if you're still dead in your sins and you need to be brought to life, then come to the source of faith and repentance. Come to the spirit of of grace and supplication. He's the spirit of adoption. The one who makes us children of God and, and by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You see, when we receive the spirit of grace, we receive a heart of prayer. The more we have of him, the more we will be a people of prayer. And so pray to God and ask him to pour out his spirit upon you. God, it's, it's you who must work this, who must begin this work in me. It's you who must pour out your spirit upon me. My soul, Lord, is, is thirsty for your grace. Pour out your spirit upon me that I may look to you in faith. 
Pour out your spirit upon me that I may truly mourn for the sins that I've committed against you. If your soul is cold and your heart is hard and your life hasn't been bearing the fruit of faith, then come to the source of grace and you will be strengthened. Let your soul be refreshed by the fountain of life. And if you're here today and you're without faith in Christ, then come. Come to the fountain. When God pours out his spirit, he brings life. He makes us alive together with Christ. And he could bring life even to the hardest of hearts. Even to a heart that has spent a lifetime of rejecting the call to faith even to a backslidden heart who's lost his way from God, maybe even for years on end. No matter the state of your heart this day, God is calling you to himself. God is inviting you to come to this fountain of grace. There's only one source of life. Turn to him in faith. And this is what follows in our text. We see here the sight. Now, I I think the ESV does does a poor job translating the Hebrew here. Um, I think it causes us to miss the force of what's actually going on. So I'm going to read it in a way that's a little bit closer to the original language. Our text says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. And then they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. There's an implied causality here that the ESV misses. The pouring out of the Spirit causes them to look upon the one whom they have crucified. Now this looking is not a looking in a physical sense. It's not done with the physical eye but it's done with the eye of faith. It's the soul searching for a remedy for the guilt of our sins and continually casting its gaze upon the only one who could save us. This language of looking is used throughout the Bible to illustrate the receiving of Christ by faith. We can look at various examples. For for instance, uh, Isaiah 45 and verse 22, where God says, Look to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. We look to Jehovah and we look nowhere else for the forgiveness of sins. And who is it that may look to him for forgiveness? It's all people. There is no one left out of this call to faith. Look to me, all the ends of the earth. You may feel like you're excluded from this call to faith because because of the heaviness and the weight and, and the guilt of your sins. Sure, God calls some people to himself. Sure, God invites some people to be forgiven but not me. 
You don't know the, the extent of my sins. But no, there is no one excluded from this call. Your sins may be great, but the grace of God is greater. He's calling all the ends of the earth not to live a good enough life before we come to him. Not to do all you can do and and hope that God makes up the difference. But he calls us simply to look. Simply cast yourself upon the Savior. Rest in him. And you will be saved. We can also think of the account in Numbers chapter 21 where fiery serpents were sent out among the Israelites in in response to their sins. But God was merciful and, and he provided a remedy for them. Make a fiery serpent, he told Moses, and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is bitten, when he looks upon it, shall live. Jesus parallels himself with this serpent in John chapter 3. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Do you see the connection there? This looking upon the serpent was an illustration of the believing upon Christ. And so the look that we ought to cast is is not upon some vain idol or image. It ought to be upon Christ himself. And we cast this look with a look of faith upon him as he set forth in the gospel. You see, we have to have a correct understanding of Christ, at least to some degree, if we will indeed look upon him in saving faith. We need to know him. We need to see him as he's set forth in the gospel. And our text tells us to look upon him as the one who was pierced. As the one who bore the sins of his people on the cross. As the one that Isaiah says was wounded for our transgressions and was bruised for our iniquities. And it's through his stripes that we are healed. We ought to look upon him as the lamb that was slain that taketh away the sins of the world. It was his body that was broken. It was his blood that was shed, that we may have peace with God. It was Christ who endured all the pains and torments of hell on the cross for our sins. And now, we may have life through his death. We are healed by his wounds. We have peace through his pain. If we come to him by faith. And if we have come to him, then he has become for us the righteousness of God. So 
not only are we cleansed from our sins, but we may stand before God as holy and blameless, being clothed in the righteousness of his Son by faith. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we may be made the righteousness of God in him. When we look upon Christ with the eyes of faith, we rest in this peace. That we are completely justified before God. And this truth ought to bring a quietness to the conscience of those who are in Christ, should it not? And what is self-examination if not a trying of your own conscience? It's a testing of yourself to see whether or not your conscience is in good standing before God. If you find that your conscience accuses you before God, then look to Christ. He's the source of your peace. Hebrews 10 tells us to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The health and the welfare of your soul depends upon the state of your conscience. Look to Christ and may your conscience be cleansed by his blood. Now, in a few moments, Lord willing, we will be taking the Lord's Supper. And in the sacrament, we'll have the broken body and the shed blood of Christ expressed for us in the elements of bread and wine. Now, these elements are things that we could look upon with the physical eye. They are a parable to the eye, as Matthew Henry said. But by the grace of God, may we look with the eye of faith upon the crucified Christ, which the elements represent. May we see Christ, as it were, in all his works of redemption, from the manger to the cross, in his incarnation, in his preaching, in his suffering, in his death. These are all proclaimed for us here in this sacrament. But as we look upon Christ in the sacrament, may we not be content with a general acknowledgement of his sufferings. We must not be content with a mere theoretical and abstract recognition of his death and crucifixion. But we ought to seek a particular and a personal acknowledgement of our consent and participation in his death. Our text says, they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. There's a personal acknowledgement of guilt in the death of Christ for those who look upon him in faith. So as we meditate on the broken body and the shed blood of Christ, may we not think it removed from us 
It's not a mere historical fact that, that stirs our emotions. Now, we are looking upon the consequences of our sins. We have crucified Christ. We have put our spouse to death. By partaking of this sacrament, we are acknowledging in our hearts our personal participation in the death of Christ. We are proclaiming, I am the one that put the crown of thorns upon his head. I am the one that drove those nails into his hands and feet. I am the one that pierced him on the cross. It was me. I did it. He was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised for my iniquities. It was my sin that was the cause of his death. There was once a man who took his son out shooting in the woods. And there was an accident. Something happened, and the boy was shot by his father. So the father picked up his son and rushed him to the hospital. He took his bleeding child into his arms and ran into the emergency room yelling, I did it! I did it. And he was filled with so much sorrow for what he had done that he could never look upon a gun again. This is like the Christian who looks upon the crucified Christ. He takes his broken, bleeding body of Christ into his arms, if you will, And he recognizes the fact that he is responsible. I did it. I did it. It was for my sins that he was pierced. It was my sin that made this necessary. And how could we ever look to our sins again? They put your spouse to death. They pierced his hands and feet. They put his soul through the pains and torments of hell. How could we think so little of our sins? Samuel Rutherford gives us a strong warning in this regard. He said, The willful sinner who takes sin into his bosom is cruel to his maker. If Christ be your husband and you his wife, then sin slew your husband. Will the wife love the knife that cut her husband's throat? You'll say the wife does not love the husband If she takes the man into her bosom who pursued her husband to the death and helped to execute him upon the gallows. Should the redeemed of the Lord then love their lusts 
that pursued Christ to the death and nailed him to the cross, then beware, by going on in sin, of saying amen to the shedding of Christ's blood. Your sins are not something to play with. They're not small. They're not insignificant. They're not harmless. Your sins pierced the Savior. You cannot claim to love Christ, to be looking to Christ, if in the depths of your heart you are still yelling, Crucify him. But then here we see the closeness of the relationship between faith and repentance. For in faith we look upon Christ, and in repentance we mourn for our sins in response to the sight of the Savior. A true faith leads us by necessity to a true repentance. And just as we continually look upon Christ by faith, so we will continually repent of our sins. We won't ever be free from sin in this life. But a true believer is marked by his mourning over the fact that he has offended Christ by his sins. This is our third and final point from this text, and it pertains to the sorrow that attends a true evangelical repentance. When they look upon me on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. This was the response of the Jews on the day of Pentecost. Peter preaches before the Jews. He says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made this same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. He pointed them to Christ to look upon what they had done to the Savior. And then we're told, When they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent. May this be our response this morning. We have been shown that our sins have crucified Christ. Has this pricked our hearts? Can we even think such a thought and not be stirred to repentance? If your piercing of Christ does not pierce your heart, I want you to see from our text that it's due to a lack of faith. 
The thought of having crucified Christ leads the believer to mourn, to sorrow, in a way that can't be expressed with words. Our text compares it to one of the greatest pains imaginable in this life, to the mourning for losing a son, your only son. That pain is unimaginable. It runs deep. It's something you can never really recover from. It will follow you all the days of your life. But such a sorrow is only a picture. Both believers and unbelievers can experience that kind of sorrow. But repentance is a saving grace. It has a supernatural source. It's the kind of sorrow that pierces the very depths of our souls. We have killed the Lord of glory. If this doesn't break your heart, you ought to go before God and ask him for a softened heart. God wants a people with hearts that are broken for their sins. Rend your hearts, he tells us. Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken and a contrite heart. True repentance comes with a broken heart, a mourning for sin, and also a hatred for sin. Our text tells us that we ought to be in bitterness The word here implies something so bitter that it's nauseating. It disgusts us, and we we have an impulsive aversion to it. Any sweetness that we find in our sins ought to be overshadowed by the bitterness we feel in our mourning for them. Thomas Watson beautifully wrote, The more bitterness we taste in sin, the more sweetness we shall taste in Christ. And the amount of bitterness we taste in sin is in proportion to the extent to which we are looking to Christ. If you have a dim sight of Christ, you will have a dim and shallow repentance. There is no sin as sweet as communion with God. This communion brings joy to the soul. It brings gladness to our hearts. Yes, we ought to mourn for our sins. We ought to lament the fact that we have crucified Christ But thanks be to God that the story doesn't end there. The Lord's response to our repentance is as it was to Israel in in Hosea 14, where he says, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. For my anger is turned away from him. We serve a merciful God 
who calls all men everywhere to look upon him and be saved. Look upon him and experience this peace to your soul. Look upon him and rejoice. For through his death, you may have life. Through his condemnation, you may have peace. And through his wounds, you may be healed. Amen. Let's pray. Lord of heaven, we ask that you would give all who are here today a look upon Christ crucified. Grant us, Lord, repentance unto life. May you afflict our souls for the severity of our sins. May we never think lightly upon them. For they are the very sins which crucified our Savior. That put to death the very Son of God. Help us, Lord, in our preparation for the Lord's Supper. Grant us a deeper love for you, a more lively faith in you, and a more honest, genuine, heartfelt repentance towards you. Pity us, Lord, and help us in these things by the pouring out of your Spirit upon us. We ask these things humbly in the name of Christ. Amen.